morning. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in amma ba'd. So welcome to uh, lesson two, inshallah, for this year, second year of uh, Quranic progression. And as promised last week, before we continue with our tafsir of Surah Quraysh, uh, what we want to do is um, speak a little bit about the exam. So the exam for year one, was held um, not this weekend past, but the weekend before, but then there was a deferred exam for those people who weren't able to take the exam first time around, and that was held this past weekend. So we have the results in, um, but before I go through some of them, inshallah, I want to first of all um, say a big jazakallah khairan to everyone who actually, yeah, I'm supposed to be wearing this, right? think I'd know by now. Okay, so um, I, I want to say a big Jazakallah Khairan for everyone who took the exam and made the effort and took out some time from their busy schedules to actually sit that exam um, and, and to, to make that effort. Because it's not something which, you know, there's really any recognition for. It's not like a, a program where you're going to get a degree or anything like that. It is mostly for our own benefit that we take the exam and that we revise and we go through all of those steps. And that's something which is important. It's something which is important because an essential component of seeking knowledge is not only to take that knowledge in the first place, but to retain that knowledge. And one of the greatest and most effective ways of retaining that knowledge is by constant revision. And this idea or this concept, you know, that exams are something which are, you know, I mean, no one likes exams, right? It's not one of the most pleasant experiences in life. But it's something which is necessary and essential because it helps us to have that revision component. You know, back in the day, in, in, in the past, when people would seek knowledge, they would revise that knowledge with one another. They would sit with friends and they would sit with their students and they would sit with their teachers and they would revise that knowledge. And there are statements from the likes of Imam al-Dhahabi, rahimahullah, and Ibn Hajar, rahimahullah, and others, that they would say that we would spend months and months revising the knowledge that we had sought. So this idea that you seek knowledge, you come to a class, you take a course, and then all of a sudden that knowledge is embedded within you for the rest of your life is a concept which you know from you know, even everyday life isn't something which is realistic. So knowledge requires practice, it requires revision, it requires focus and repeated refocusing on that knowledge in order to keep it, inshallah. And that's the same in the Qur'an. The Qur'an isn't something which you can just memorize at once and then retain. It's something which requires constant revision until you reach that point in time where you're so familiar with that memorization that the revision can then become slightly easier for you. So that's really the whole uh, you know, purpose, at least from my point of view, for the exam. It's something which you know, we no longer have that kind of setup where people are studying with each other, revising with each other. We're not in the constant process of where we see each other, each other on a daily basis in the morning and in the evening and we're questioning one another or even that we're going to different teachers and they're questioning us in terms of our knowledge because back in the day, the Salaf used to have many teachers. It wasn't just one teacher that they would have. They would go through many different scholars and many different teachers and they would constantly be questioned and, and taught and, and, and asked about the knowledge that they, they'd sought and that would make them refocus and reanalyze what they had learned. And it would obviously add perspective to that knowledge as well. 
So that's why it's very important that we take out that time, make that effort to, to do something like the exam. And you know, even though I'm going to go through like the top three uh, results that we've had, and you know, I think uh, from what, what I've been told is like we had over 200 people set the exam, which, which is amazing like from across the world, right? Because they're obviously not all here in Birmingham, but from across the world, people took out their time and made the effort to actually go and, um, and set that exam. But I wanted to just make this point very clear that it's not about necessarily the result, even though those are amazing results for those people who came top. It is more about revising the knowledge and keeping that knowledge and being familiar with that knowledge. So uh, we're actually going to go through the exam paper as well, like kind of quickly, inshallah. But before we do that, the top three results, which are not just three people because there's quite a few people that have like the same result. But the top three results is in first place is um, Sahal Ahmed, MashaAllah, who got, uh, huh? Too easy for him. Too easy for him, yeah. I think he probably only got one question wrong, right? Because he got over 97%. MashaAllah, Tabarakallah. And then in joint second, we have three people. Zahra Muhammad Habib, Firoza Irani bint Husseini, and Sumaira Wasti. I hope I pronounced all of those names correctly. Radza that I didn't, so I apologize. And they got uh, 95%. That's joint second. And then joint third, we have like six people. Uh, Nabil Nasir, Muniza Ali, Fawzia Saeed, I think that's Raghad Nahas, Sheila Bagala, and Marzita Abdurrahman. They all got 93%. So those are like the top three scores. Like, you know, those are the top three that people got. And there was quite, and even in fourth place, there's like 10 people that came and joined fourth. Um, but that's enough of my bad pronunciation of names. So, um, you know, mashallah, those people did amazingly. And inshallah, I hope that all of us that keep up revising that knowledge and keeping that knowledge up. So just go, to go through that first um, question paper or that first exam that we had. And really, I think it's challenging to set tafsir right, as an exam. It is probably one of the more challenging sciences to examine. Um, it's not, not so straightforward as maybe perhaps fiqh or aqidah or even hadith or some of the other sciences are easier to do because you know you can ask what was the opinion of such and such a scholar and what are the positions of the classical scholars and what are the evidences that you it is slightly easier to do in tafsir because it is so vast and so comprehensive and you're crossing so many sciences it is very difficult to bring that all into especially a multiple choice kind of question format right because when i was in Medina university we weren't asked multiple choice questions when it came to tafsir Right, you were told, comment on this verse. Right? What did the scholars of Tafsir say about that verse? And then you write and you write. So it's very difficult to kind of like bring that down. So I think um, you know, that, that's like an important point to mention. But very quickly, just going through some of these questions. We obviously last year took this ti'adha, the basmala, and then we did from Surah Al-Nas all the way up to Surah Al-Humaza. No, not Surah Al-Humaza, Surah Ma'un. Right, Surah Ma'un. So we cover those like, what is it, seven odd surahs from the Qur'an. So in terms of um, some of the questions, what does the term isti'adha refer to? Um, is it a'udhu, a'udhu billah, a'udhu billahi min shaytan rajim Or um, option D was B and C, which is obviously the correct answer. The isti'adha is a term that refers to seeking refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the minimum that you would be able to say therefore is to say a'udhu billah. 
right? And obviously, you can see more than that as well. Um, another question was, what are the different phrases that you can see in terms of making this ti'adha? And all three of them uh, were correct. Well, they've been mentioned anyway in, in, uh, from amongst some of the scholars. Which of the following does not describe shaitan? I think some of these questions were really easy. Uh, which of the following does not describe shaitan? Shaitan, Iblis, an angel, an enemy to mankind. Right. Anyone who got that wrong? Okay, so which of, which of the following isn't a description of shaitan? Rajim, Marid, Al-Waswas Al-Khannas, and then protected, which so obviously protected is the one. What is the name of the devil that each human being is assigned? We have shaitan, Iblis, Jinni, and Qareen, and it is Qareen. What is the view of the majority of scholars with regards to the ruling of reciting isti'adha? The isti'adha before reciting the Qur'an. Obligatory, recommended, permissible, disliked, and the correct answer is? Recommended. Okay. Uh, I don't want to go through all of these because so I think some of them are pretty straightforward. Who said that the isti'adha is not from the Qur'an, hence you only recited in nafil prayers? Imam Malik, rahimahullah. That is a statement that is attributed to him. Which of the following is the basmala? Say, Bismillah rahman rahim Bism, Bismillah, or Bismillah rahman The basmala is the full thing, right? And the following question was on the tasmiyah. And so in Arabic, the difference between the two is the tasmiyah is to say Bismillah. And the basmala is to say all of it. Bismillah rahman rahim And that's why at the beginning of the surahs of the Qur'an, they are called the basmala, right? It is called the basmala because you recite all of it um, and therefore it is known as the basmala. Um, what are the two surahs falaq and nas known as? The mu'awwidhatin. Okay. Um, yeah. Which five surahs of the Quran begin with qul? That was probably one of the more challenging ones. Kafirun, Nas, Falak, Ikhlas, and Jinn. Right? Those are the five surahs. Um, uh, which surahs did the Prophet say made him grow old? Yeah, Surah Hud and its sisters. Right? Um, okay. Which of the following is correct about Surah Ikhlas? It is the shortest surah, the only surah that mentions Tawheed, the only surah where the names of Allah, Ahad, and Samad are mentioned, or all of the above. Right, it's the only surah of the Quran where the names of Allah, Al-Ahad, and Al-Samad are mentioned. Um, what do the scholars say was the reason of revelation for Surah Ikhlas? It was the day of Eid, the Prophet lost his uncle, Option C, the Arabs asked the Prophet about the lineage of Allah or all of the above. It was the lineage of Allah, right? The Arabs asked the Prophet to tell them about the lineage of Allah. And so Allah revealed Surah Ikhlas. Um, what was the cause of revelation for Surah Masad? <coughs> We're skipping surahs now. Um, I think the one that, that's been mentioned here, which is the correct one, is the Prophet ﷺ calling the Quraysh from the mountain of Safa and Abu Lahab, cursing him. 
Okay. Uh, verse 2 of Surah Masad, what incident does it relate to? Abu Lahab tried to bribe the Prophet with money. Abu Lahab said, if I'm accountable on the day, on the day that Muhammad claims, I will use my wealth and get ransom. Abu Lahab financed the Battle of Badr or Abu Lahab paid large sums to free many slaves on the birth of the Prophet There's the second one, right? That he said that if I am ever held to account as the Prophet claims, then I will use my wealth and my money to free myself from the punishment that he is threatening me with. Okay, and then, you know, I think, um, I mean, we have like 50-odd questions, so I don't want to go through all of them. But um, again, inshallah, I think, I think, uh, I think that that's something, inshallah, which, which, um, which was a good exercise, and it's something which helps to refresh that knowledge, inshallah. And as I think all of you know, those videos are available online. So anyone that wants to go back and look at them again is more than welcome to do so. So continuing with where we left off last week, we were on Surah Quraysh. And we covered the first verse of Surah Quraysh, in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Li'ilafi Quraysh. And we mentioned that the Lam at the beginning of Li'ilafi, the scholars of Tafsir have a number of views on what it refers to and what it pertains to and what it is connected to. One of those opinions is that it is connected to the previous verse of the last, the last verse of the previous surah, which is Surah Al-Fil. And that was the position of some of the scholars who said that these two surahs are in fact one surah. These two surahs are in fact a single surah of the Quran. And then you have the other opinion, which is the opinion that is uh, supported by Imam Al-Tabari, rahimahullah, and he said that the lamb refers to what? Lam Al-Ta'ajjub. It is a lamb to denote amazement of what is the blessings that Allah Azza wa bestowed upon this tribe of Quraysh. And then we said that ilaf has a number of meanings also. One of the meanings is what? Ta'leef, which means? To unite, right? That the Quraysh became united. And that's because it was very common amongst Arab tribes in that time before Islam <clears throat> to be disunited, to have constantly civil warfare and strife. They were constantly fighting with one another. And it's very common as we have in the example of the Ansar of Medina. Before the Prophet went, the Aus and the Khazraj, despite living together in a single place and despite being related to one another, had constant warfare and strife amongst them. And then the other opinion is that Yilaf refers to No, no, we're going on to Ilaf now, not the Lamb. <coughs> the Ilaf refers to becoming accustomed to something, right? Getting used to something, becoming accustomed to something. What is it that they were accustomed to? What is it that they had become accustomed to? This is what Allah Azza wa refers to in the second verse of this surah, in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ilafihim For the security and the customization or becoming accustomed to the traveling and the journeys of the winter and the summer, the two journeys that they had in the winter and the summer. Al-Imam ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala said, and it is said that the meaning of this verse is that it refers to the trip, the journey, the trade caravan that they would have in the winter towards Yemen and in the summer towards Asham. Towards Asham. And then that they would return back home safe and sound because of the honor that the people gave to them and because that they were from the 
residents of the Haram of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So whoever knew who they were and where they came from would respect them and recognize them for their position. To the extent that even those who whilst they were traveling on their trade caravans, others who would come and join their trade caravans who were not from Quraysh, were not from Mecca, but simply wanted to accompany them on their trade caravans would be granted the same honor and the same safety and the same asylum that was given to the people of Quraysh. He says, Rahimahullah, and this is how they would travel in the summer and in the winter. And as for when they were home, meaning they were resident back in Mecca, then it is as Allah Azza wa says in Surah Al-Ankabut, verse 67, Do they not see how we have made for them the haram, a safe abode, whilst others, other tribes, other nations, other peoples are being snatched away, meaning that they are being harmed and attacked and so on. Because it was very common in those days that people would attack tribes and people would steal from the tribes of Arabia and they would fight with one another and so on. But the Quraysh, by and large, were saved from this because of their position amongst the Arabs. And because they were given, they were the people who were the custodians of the Kaaba and the Haram of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Abdullah ibn Abbas uh, said, it means that Allah made them accustomed to this type of traveling so it didn't become a burden for them. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in verse 1 and verse 2 is reminding Quraysh of some of the greatest blessings that Allah gave to them. The blessings that they were given from safety and security which has already been alluded to in Surah Fir which we haven't come to yet but it's mentioned in Surah Fir when Allah saved him from the army of the elephant. But also now that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying to them that Allah gave to them rizq and provision and sustenance. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave them the ability at a time when remember the Arabs were what? By and large, poor, destitute, people who didn't have wealth, people who didn't have uh, kingdoms, people who didn't have uh, natural resources that they could rely upon. They were by and large people who, who weren't worthy of even being fought or attacked or conquered. And that's why even though you had the Roman Byzantine Empire on one side of Arabia, the Persian Sassanid Empire on the other side of Arabia, Arab, the Arabian Peninsula itself was by and large never conquered by anyone. And that's because it was considered to be only desert and Bedouins. Right? There's no major force there. There's no major kingdom there. There's no major wealth to be attained. There's no benefit from taking those lands. So people just ignored it because they considered them to be Bedouins, right? And they considered them to be people who were nomads and people who didn't really pose a, a threat. Despite all of this, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave to Quraysh an amazing source of income and wealth that gave them prestige and honor, and it made them obviously a force amongst the Arabs within Arabia. Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhu made another statement of his that is mentioned by Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah in his tafsir. He says that Allah Azza wa Jal told them that they shouldn't go and or they don't need to go and travel anymore. But rather what they should do is they should focus their efforts on worshipping the Lord of this house, meaning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's because he says that after their constant traveling in the summer and in the winter, Allah Azza wa Jal had now brought provision to them within Mecca. What does that mean? How has it changed from the traveling and the trade caravans? Because we know that the trade caravans still existed even in the time of the Prophet Abu Talib and Khadija radiallahu anha and others, they used to go and have these 
trade caravans. And even in the Battle of Badr, what's the reason why the battle occurs? Because Abu Sufyan is returning back with a trade caravan. And the Muslims hear of this and they go to try to attack it. And Abu Sufyan obviously hears and he changes path and so on. But the reasoning still comes back to this. So why does an Imam al-Tabi rahimahullah, when he narrates this uh, narration of Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhu, why is he saying that they no longer need to do this? Yeah, so I'm not looking for the technical reason. Like practically, why, why would they no longer need to go and do this? Because now the trade is coming to Mecca itself. How is it coming to Mecca? By virtue of, by virtue of the pilgrims. So when Mecca becomes the center, right, and it's still the same right now, right, Gohar? <laughs> when you went for Hajj, people come from all over the world, and what do they do? They buy and they sell in Mecca, right? And they're making crazy amount of money because people like me and you will go and we'll buy dates and we'll buy prayer mats by the dozen and we'll buy A, B, C, and D, and we'll go and we'll bring so much, take so much money to the economy. The same thing happened in the time of the Prophet ﷺ in the time of Quraysh. You have all of these people now traveling bringing their wealth and their money and their trade. Why would I travel from Yemen all the way to Sham when the people from Sham are going to come to Mecca anyway? I can save half the journey by going to Mecca in the time of pilgrimage when all other people are coming and I can be there and do my trade and commerce and then go home. Makes sense from a business point of view. And the people that will come and congregate in Mecca will be far greater, more diverse, coming from different backgrounds, more likely to buy and purchase from me then if I was to go to their lands and I'm competing with their local traders. So Allah brings wealth to Mecca and he makes them prosperous and he makes them wealthy and he gives to them the money that they had and this is obviously towards the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So we're not talking about generations before but when now Mecca becomes the center and this is especially after the incident of the elephant. When Allah destroys the army of the elephant, the Arabs knew the position of Quraysh, that Allah had come and saved them from this amazing army of elephants and the amazing army or this great army of Abraha who had come to destroy the Kaaba. So their position amongst the Arabs is elevated and their respect grows in the eyes of the rest of the Arabs. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, so this is the, 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 um, the meaning of this verse of Ibn Abbas. Instead, what should they do then if they no longer need to go and travel in the summer and the winter to Yemen and to Asham, they should worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is the lesson for me and you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this surah, in the first two verses, tells us two important things. Number one, to recognize Allah's blessings. And when we say recognize Allah's blessings, it doesn't mean just to simply, you know, because everyone speaks about recognizing Allah's blessings, acknowledging them, knowing them, seeing them. This is something which, but what does it actually mean to recognize and acknowledge the blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah is reminding Quraysh and telling them to think and to compare their situation with the situation of others. So Allah is comparing them to the rest of the Arabs. Just as the Prophet told us don't look at those who are above you, but rather look at those who are below you. For that is more likely that you won't reject Allah's blessings. So you're always comparing yourself to those people who are less fortunate. Not so that you can become more arrogant, but so that you are humbled more. So you know that I could have been in that position. Because now when we speak about you know, the Quraysh and their blessings, what is the blessing that Allah will go on to speak about? 
sure that Allah fed them and saved them from hunger. That's not something which me and you can really relate to because even though there is still drought and famine in this world, it's not something which I don't think any of us have experienced firsthand to live at a time of drought and famine when there is no food and no drink and you're literally fighting over food and you, you have to ration what you have. It's not something which even though we see on TV and so on, it's not something which we have experienced and can really understand. But the Quraysh, it is something which they understood because everyone around them is experiencing this. All of the Arabia. It's a place of drought, it's a place of famine, it's a place of rationing food, it's a place where people don't have much. And we know that many of the Muslims themselves were extremely poor, even after Islam, including our Prophet ﷺ, where months would go by and he wouldn't light a fire and he would spend, or his existence would be upon dates and water. So the, this is how Allah tells us to recognize his blessings, to understand them. So when we have blessings, all of us have blessings, the blessing of wealth and the blessing of good health, the blessing of children and safety and security and being able to earn, earn a good living and so on and so forth. To understand and appreciate those blessings means that we think about the opposite and putting ourselves in a position where we couldn't go and do all of this. Even the fact that we can come here and study together in this place, come and study and learn about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's book and his religion. It's not something which was afforded to, you know, it's not afforded to many other people. It's not afforded to everyone. It's not something which is accessible to everyone. If you were to look back 30, 40, 50 years, our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation, they probably didn't have access or the ability to go and seek knowledge and learn in this way. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us that ability to understand those blessings and then to recognize and acknowledge them and then what Allah will say in verse number three, which we haven't come on to yet, but the second point of this is then what? That those blessings should make us worship Allah more. They shouldn't be things which busy us from Allah. So Quraysh are given wealth, they're given safety, they're given security. They have the premier position amongst all of the Arabs. What does Allah say they should do with that? What should be the net result? So then let them worship the Lord of this house. They have the least excuse not to worship Allah. They don't have to worry about drought and famine. They don't have to worry about a lack of wealth. They don't have to worry about tribes attacking them and constantly being living for fear of their lives. They have the least excuse to turn away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Just as all of us, the blessings that we enjoy make us from those people who should be the most worshipful of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the most in terms of seeking knowledge and drawing closer to Allah and busying ourselves with remembrance of Allah Azza wa and giving charity and doing good deeds and helping others. We, are, we have been given the most in terms of blessings and therefore our uh, relationship with Allah should be closer than the relationship of others. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying this to Quraysh. Qatada rahimahullah ta'ala said, that Allah Azza wa is saying that he made for, them, made for them the journey of the winter and the summer easy. Right? Because remember, going in those days, you know, in, in the summer heat from Mecca to Asham, or even in the winter from Mecca to Yemen, is something which is going to take a month or more in terms of the journey distance. It is something which is extremely difficult. And then especially if there's a caravan of you, there's people, there's camels, there's, there's wealth, there's money, there's trade and so on. It is something which is extremely difficult. Allah Azza wa is saying he made it easy for them by giving them 
safety and security, that no one attacked them, no one robbed them, no one came and, 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 uh, and besieged them. And also because Allah Azza made them accustomed to it. It became something which was normal for them. And they became used to going and making that journey every single summer and every single winter. The scholars also um, have different uh, views and opinions as to the meaning of ashita and as-sayf. What is Allah referring to subhanahu wa ta'ala when he speaks about the two journeys of the winter and the summer? One of those opinions, and it is the opinion of Ikrimah, rahimahullah ta'ala, the famous student of Abdullah ibn Abbas, he used to say that both of those journeys were to Palestine, were to Philistine. But the journey of the winter would be towards the sea because it is warmer, the climate would be warmer by the sea. And in the summer, it would be to a place called, you know, towards Basra and that area because it would be cooler. So he would say that both of those journeys were towards Palestine. One would be towards the warmer area and one would be towards the cooler climate in the summer. The second opinion, which is the opinion of Ibn Zayd, is the opinion that I think um, is the most famous opinion, and that is that the winter journey was the journey to Yemen, and the summer journey was the journey to Asham. And Abdullah ibn Abbas, عنهما, that is the third opinion that is attributed to him, and that is that he would say that they would spend the winter in Mecca. Mecca, by its nature, its climate is very warm, very hot. So even in the winter, Mecca still remains relatively warm, as opposed to Medina and Riyadh and other, other places. Mecca still remains relatively warm, even in the winter. So he says that they would spend the winter in Mecca, but in the, sorry, the summer, uh, yeah, the winter in Mecca, but in the summer, they would go to Ta'if. Right, Ta'if is that famous mountainous kind of area, not too far from Mecca. They would go to Ta'if because it is cooler in Ta'if. Yeah, this is the, the opinion that is attributed to Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah. And obviously the most uh, famous of those opinions is the opinion of the two trade caravans, one going to Yemen in the, in the winter and the other one going to Asham in the summer. Ibn Ashur rahimahullah ta'ala in his tafsir, he says that this is something which the Arabs, the Quraysh started well before Islam, these two caravans or these two journeys and these two, um, these two long journeys to, uh, to the, these two places in the winter and in the summer is something which happened before Islam. And he mentions that the one who, as is, it is said that Abdullah ibn Abbas, there is a narration from him, that the first one who started this was Hashim. Who is Hashim? One of the ascendants of the Prophet who is his great-grandfather, right? So the Prophet's father's name is Abdullah. His grandfather's name is Abdul Muttalib. His great-grandfather's name is Hashim. It is said that his great-grandfather, Hashim, is the one who started this journeying from uh, in, the, in the summer and in the winter. It is said that he and his three brothers, he had three brothers, Hashim, Abd Shamas, Abdul Shams, Al-Muttalib, and Nawfal. And each one of them would go to the different parts of the Arabian Peninsula and the different kingdoms that were in those areas in the Arabian Peninsula and they would strike an accord with those kings and the rulers of those kingdoms. 
that they would grant them safe passage in return for some of the wealth or some of the profits that they would make from their business transactions. And so this became well known. And so they would be granted, um, you know, he even goes into detail, he says, Hashim went to the king of Hisham, Abd Shams went to the king of Rome, or, or the Byzantines, uh, Najashi or Habasha, Abdul Muttalib went to the king of Yemen, and Nofal went to the king of Persia. And they would make this trade uh, accord with them. They would give them some of their profits in return for safe passage. And because they were granted this safe passage, the other Arabs started to give their wealth towards Quraysh. Said, you take our wealth as well, you take our possessions, we'll give you a share of our profit, you go and you start trading on our behalf as well. And this is how they became well known for their trade and for their commerce. It is reported that Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, the famous scholar and Khalifa, he said that also a similar story, that the first person to start this was Hashim, the great-grandfather of the Prophet And he says that the reason why he started this, or one of the reasons, or one of the events that occurred at this time, is that the Quraysh had a, uh, an ada, a, a practice, that the Quraysh, because of the self-respect that they had for themselves and the pride that they had for themselves, that if a person or the father of the family, the husband, if he could no longer provide for his family, he became poor, could no longer provide for his family, he would take his family out into the desert and they would stay there until they died because they would consider it to be shameful that the father and the husband could no longer provide for his family and his children. So rather than bear that shame, he would take them all into the desert and they would just die out of, of starvation, out of hunger. And this was a practice that became normal in Mecca amongst the Quraysh. Hashim, when he became the leader of Quraysh, he gathered the people of Quraysh because he saw that this was a practice which didn't make sense. And remember that in the time of Arabia, like in the time of, of, of what is a tribal society, the way that the society, the tribe becomes stronger, gains more prestige, is by the number of people and the bigger and larger the tribe becomes. So the more people in the tribe, the more prestigious, the more stronger, and so on and so forth. So therefore, Hashim, when he saw this practice, he didn't like it. He gathered the leaders of Quraysh, and he said to them, that I have a solution to this. They said, what's the solution? He said, every rich man from Quraysh must have as a partner in his business a poor man. So you have a rich family, they take on a poor family as business partners. <clears throat> and that way when the rich man goes and he does his business and he makes his profit, no, no, nothing, he makes his profit and he, and, he, and he comes back with his business and his money, he shares the profit with the poor one. And so therefore no one remains poor in Mecca. Right, so almost like a social enterprise that he started. And it was so successful that not only did that practice die out amongst Quraysh, but Quraysh was like their honor and their position amongst the Arabs was increased because they found a way of helping the poor amongst them and the lowly in society and raising them up and helping them and giving them you know, that wealth and they would share that wealth amongst them. And he says, and it is because of this Umar ibn Abdul Aziz said, it is because of this that Quraysh, their stature, their position grew amongst the Arabs. And then when the army of the elephants came and Allah destroyed the army of the elephants, it grew even more to the extent that the Quraysh or the people, the Arabs used to say that Quraysh is a blessed tribe. 
So when they would go and they would travel and they would make their journeys to Asham and to Yemen, no one would harm them, no one would attack them, no one would rob them or their trade caravans from their wealth because of this position that they were given amongst the people of Arabia. And this is how it started uh, according to those scholars. Ibn Qutaybah said, and through also this, one of the other benefits that the Quraysh had was that they were given recognition amongst all of Arabia because they were constantly traveling throughout Arabia. So the people became familiar with them and they became familiar with others. Right? So when you travel and you meet different tribes and you meet different Arabs and you know about their family and their lineage and their genealogy, you become well known to them and they become well known to you. And that's why, uh, you know, a famous example of this is who? Amongst the Arabs or amongst the companions? Abu Bakr, radiallahu anhu. He was known as a Nassab, a genealogist. He was someone who could ask a person which tribe they came from and he would understand the whole background of that tribe and what they were known for and what attributes they possessed and whether they were good people or bad people and so on and so on. And that's why the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam when he was looking for people to give him asylum and he was going through the different Arab tribes in the seasons of Hajj and he would go and he would talk to them about Islam in the hopes that they would accept Islam and give refuge to the Muslims before the Hijrah, he would always take Abu Bakr with him. And he would ask Abu Bakr, who is this tribe? And he would say, oh, Messenger of Allah, it is such and such a tribe. And then he would ask him, what do you know of this tribe? And sometimes Abu Bakr would say, stay away from that tribe. Not, they don't have good characteristics. They're known to cheat. They're known to deceive. They're not good people. They're not trustworthy. They don't have any integrity. So the Prophet would avoid them. And sometimes he would be told, no, oh, Messenger of Allah, these are people who are honorable, people who have strength, people who have position. If they accept Islam, we will be given some of that strength and some of that position that they have. And so Abu Bakr was always the one who is, uh, you know, is, is being taken by the Prophet for this advice. And that's why also when the Prophet is making his hijrah finally to, from Mecca to Medina, there's an incident where they pass by Abu Bakr and the Prophet the Prophet they pass by a man who's a trader who comes and he recognizes Abu Bakr but he doesn't recognize the Prophet Why does he recognize Abu Bakr? Because Abu Bakr is a businessman. He's constantly traveling. People know him. He knows them. So he becomes well-known, right? So equivalent of like what? Bill Gates or someone, right? Everyone knows who Bill Gates is because he's someone who's so well-known for his business. Abu Bakr is well-known. So he asks him, oh, Abu Bakr, where are you going? And who's this man with you? And what does he say? This is my guide, right? meaning he's my guide in terms of my spiritual guide, but the man understood he's a guide that's taking him from one place to another. And that's because they were obviously fearful for their lives and they're running away from Quraysh. So Abu Bakr has this position amongst the Muslims and amongst the Arabs. So Ibn Qutaybah says this is also from the way in which Allah gave Quraysh this special standing and position, that they are a people who all of Arabia is familiar with. Right? You don't know every other tribe, not every other tribe is famous, not every other tribe is well known, no one knows everyone else, but Mecca, its location is central. Everyone is coming to Mecca to pay, make pilgrimage. The Quraysh themselves are business people, they're constantly traveling. So people know who they are and they know who other people are. And Allah obviously gave them those added virtues by saving them from the army of the elephant and by giving them that position of being custodians of the Arabs. One of the positions of Imam Malik rahimahullah, that he takes from this verse 
is that he says that therefore the year is only divided into how many seasons? Two. Based upon this verse. That the Arabs, amongst the Arabs, the Arabs only know two seasons in the year. They know summer and they know winter. Right? This autumn spring business is only if you're European or someone else and you like to see those kind of seasons. Arabs don't know what spring is and what autumn is. Either it's really hot or it's really cold. Right? It is either summer or it is winter. It doesn't necessarily imply that, and that's why, like, I don't know, like, if other scholars hold that position. Um, and other scholars that I, I have seen have gone into detail, and they say, yes, but the summer is split into two further seasons, right? Which is spring and summer, and then winter is split into autumn and winter, right? So it's like, it's not really, you know, it's, it's just, uh, uh, but it's something which is mentioned in some of the books. And, and, and he has, to be fair, he has like some um, narrations that support because the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ that normally mentions seasons only mention the two, like in the Quran. The Quran only mentions summer and winter as seasons. And the Sunnah only mentions summer and winter as seasons, like in the hadith of Abu Hurairah radiallahu an, that is in Bukhari and Muslim, When the fire of hell complained to Allah and it said, Oh Allah, parts of me are devouring other parts. So Allah gave it permission to take two breaths, to breathe twice, once in the winter and once in the summer. So the Prophet ﷺ said that the extreme heat and the bitter cold that you experience, it is from the breathing of Jahannam. May Allah save us from it. And so, you know, that's like he uses those evidences that the Sunnah and the Sharia generally only speak in terms of two seasons, right? Summer and winter, and Allah knows best. Yeah, no, that is talking about the two extremes and it's talking about obviously what the Arabs are familiar with. Because most of the Arab world, especially in that part, the Middle East, like the Arabian Peninsula, isn't familiar with the concept of autumn, right? You don't really get like brown leaves and you know, like orange leaves and yellow leaves. There. They don't, like, it's not like something which is familiar. It is familiar now because obviously the world's become a smaller place and people understand this kind of stuff much better. But it's not something which, you know, and even having lived in Saudi Arabia for so many years, you know, you can attest to kind of like, it's just summer and winter. Yes, the beginning of summer is cooler, and then it gets, you know, and the beginning of winter is, is easier or less cold, and then it gets more bitter. But they don't really have an autumn, and they don't really have the spring, like in that sense. So it's speaking to the Arabs in terms of, in terms of what they are familiar with, right? And that's something to, important to remember in the Quran, that the Quran, because it's revealed to the Prophet ﷺ at the time of Quraysh, it is obviously speaking to them in a way that they are familiar. But at the same time, it doesn't negate other possibilities, right? So the fact that Allah mentions only summer and winter doesn't negate the possibility that there are other seasons, but it is focusing primarily on what is familiar to the Arabs of that time, right? And that's obviously something which the Quran and the Sunnah do um, because it is revealed at that time and in that place. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is reminding Quraysh of these blessings, right? The blessing of security, the blessing of being united, the blessing of being able to take these trade journeys, the blessing of, of being recognized amongst the Arabs and being given that special status. Right? And we mentioned, I think, last week and maybe the week before as well, we mentioned, uh, what did we mention? We mentioned that the fact in, in Surah Al-Nasr, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or when some of the scholars of Tafsir said that they were waiting for the Quraysh to see what they would do, the other Arab tribes. So if they accepted Islam, the other Arabs would follow suit. 
And that's why you have Amul Wufud, the year of delegations, when Allah says, And you will see the people entering into the region of Allah in droves. The Prophet would make the dua in the Quran, Rabi'a isn't that an indirect acknowledgement of spring too? I don't know if that refers to necessarily, I mean, it is translated as Rabi'a as in spring because that's the conventional, uh, you know, the, the commonplace uh, translation. But I don't know if it refers to a spring as in the season spring, right? That's not what it's referring to um, in terms of classical Arabic, and Allah knows best. <clears throat> Verse number three, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then goes on to say, فَلْيَعْبُدُوا رَبَّ هَذَا الْبَيْتِ So let them then worship the Lord of this house. The fahya is the response to what has come before. You have all of these blessings. You've been given the blessing of trade, the blessing of security, the blessing of all of these blessings that we've just mentioned. What do you do therefore? So then therefore let them. Right? This should be the result of everything that Allah has blessed you with. Right? And again, relating it to me and you, Allah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed us with so much. The question is, what are we doing with those blessings? Right? And that is a core part of our religion. That our skills, the talents that Allah has given to us, the blessings that Allah has bestowed upon us, the different things that we are able to bring to the table individually, so that then collectively we can become stronger and more efficient and more effective. What are you doing with those blessings? Right? And it is... Uh, it is uh, similar to Surah At-Teen. Some of the scholars say that Surah At-Teen at the beginning, when Allah Azza refers to the fig and the olive and the and the the mountain and so on and the and the sacred land, it is referring to different people and different skills. You have people who are sweet like the fig, people who have the purity of olive oil, people who are strong like mountains, and people who give you peace and contentment like the sanctuary of the Haram. Allah says, لَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ فِي أَحْسَنِ تَقْوِيمِ And we create in mankind in the best of form and shape. Meaning whatever talent you have, whatever skill you've been given, however Allah has chosen to bless you, it is always from the best of blessings. Not everyone is the same. Not everyone has the same talents that they bring to the table. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given to you what is best for you in your position. But then most of the majority of mankind falls and becomes from the lowest of the low. Except for those who believe and they do righteous deeds. So likewise Allah is saying here, the Quraysh were given so many blessings, so many blessings. And one of the greatest blessings that the Quraysh have is that they are descendants of Ibrahim salam. So they have the Kaaba and they have Zamzam. And they should have had the heritage that was left for them by this illustrious Prophet Ibrahim والسلام, which is the legacy of Tawheed, that they should worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. So Allah says to them, Let them worship the Lord of this house. And they used to worship Allah. But why does Allah say this here? Because alongside this, they, used to, they also worship other gods and idols, right? 360 just in and around the Kaaba, let alone the others that they fashioned and kept in their homes and made and kept in their places of commerce and business and the ones that they would carry on their person. 
all of these different idols that they had besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah Azza wa Jalla's Imam Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala says, Allah Azza wa Jalla tells them that they should show gratitude for the blessings that Allah Azza wa Jalla bestowed upon them and he shows them how they should show that gratitude by saying, فَلْيَعْبُدُوا رَبَّ هَذَا الْبَيْتِ Let them worship the Lord of this house. So therefore the blessings that Allah gives to us, whatever they are, what is the greatest way of showing gratitude for those blessings? It is to use them in the way that pleases Allah most. Allah is saying to Quraysh, you have all of these blessings, show me gratitude for them. How? By worshipping me alone. So when you use your blessings in a way that is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, so your wealth in ways that are pleasing to Allah. So when you're earning money and you're doing it to help look after your family, your children, giving charity, support your local masjid, your local da'wah projects and so on, all of that is from what Allah Azza wa Jalla is pleased with, right? Because Allah tells us to look after our family, to support our children, to use some of that wealth in charity, to use that wealth upon ourselves and our families and to show Allah's blessings that he has bestowed us with. So it is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Our health, using it in a way that is pleasing to Allah azza wa jal. The skills that we have, the time that Allah has afforded to us. All of these things that Allah has given to us, when we bring them in a way that is beneficial and helps others, and is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that is the greatest way of showing shukr and gratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? And that's why in, um, in the Quran, when Allah azza wa jal speaks about the family of Dawood alayhi salam, it's a very interesting phrase and a very interesting, uh, if you like, wording that Allah mentions in the Quran when He says, "Imalu ala Dawuda shukra, waqalilu min ibadi al-shakur." Work, O family of Dawood, in gratitude. Right? You normally say show gratitude, right? Or be happy, or show thanks, or give thanks. But Allah says, "Work, act, O family of Dawood, in gratitude." So it's not enough simply to say, Alhamdulillah, even though that is part of thanking Allah Azza wa Jal. It's not enough just simply to acknowledge or speak about the blessings of Allah. You must use them. Work, O family of Dawood, in gratitude to Allah. And then Allah says, وَقَالِيلٌ مِّنْ عِبَادِيَ الشَّكُورٌ And very few of my slaves are truly grateful. Right? Because it is the action. Right? So the blessings that you have and the talents that you have, using them in a way that is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's what the Prophet did that was so amazing with the companions. You see all of the companions had different talents. Not, not any two of them were the same. No two of them were the same. Each one is different in terms of their talents, in terms of their skills, in terms of what they bring to the table, in terms of what they can do and what they can't do, their strengths and their weaknesses. What makes the Prophet a great leader is that he understands each one of the individual attributes and he harnesses them to what is most beneficial, takes the most that he can from them. So you have companions like Abu Hurairah is a companion who's told or who's encouraged to spend his whole day and night with the Prophet to learn and memorize hadith. Even though we know that the Prophet used to encourage people not to, not to do that generally and to go and work and to earn a living and not to ask others for help, and not to become destitute and poor. But then you have Abu Hurairah who is never told to do that. Abu Hurairah is left, why? Because he has a talent that is very rare, and that is that he can memorize thousands upon thousands of hadith. And then you have companions like Khalid ibn Walid, 
who is harnessed for his military prowess right, and his, his, his ability to be a general and a military leader. And then you have companions like Uthman radiallahu anhu and Abdurrahman ibn Awf radiallahu anhu who are known for their wealth and their, and their ability to do business and trade. And then you have companions who are known... Huh? And Hassan ibn Thabit is a very good example. He's a poet, right? And so he's told to concentrate on his poetry. Each of those companions, and then you have companions like Rubay ibn Ka'ab and others who are known for their Qur'an, their proficiency in the Qur'an. Each one of them is told to focus on that area. And that's what makes a good leader. Right, not to expect every one of us to be clones. Right? We're not all going to be scholars. We're not all going to be doctors. We're not all going to be leaders. We're not all going to be businessmen. But we, as a community, come together and we complement one another. And so one of the difficulties or one of the problems that we face today is amongst our youth and with our own children, when you expect them all to be clones of one another. Right? Everyone has to be the same. Why? Right? The Prophet ﷺ understood individuality. and He understood individual talents and he knew how to take them and use them and cultivate them. And that's what made the companions amazing because now you have this amazing community that can come together and help one another. Otherwise, if everyone's like Uthman radiallahu anh, who's going to be the military leader, right? Yeah, everyone's got money, but who's going to lead the army, right? Who's going to be the one who memorizes hadith? Who's going to be the one who comments on the Quran? Who's going to be the one who does all of those other things that the Dharani community needs? And so, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us all to come together collectively. And this is a recurring theme in the Quran and in the Sunnah and in the Sharia. Right? And you know, one of the surahs that inshallah we will cover this year is Surah Al Asr. When Allah says, Advise one another with the truth, advise one another upon patience. That's coming together as a community, right? Helping one another, advising one another because. Islam is always about the community, right? Brotherhood, the concept of community, the concept of coming together. Al-Imam al-Shawkani, rahimahullah ta'ala, said that Allah Azza wa Jal made the Quraysh aware of, their, of the many blessings that he bestowed upon them. And then he told them to worship him alone as the Lord of the house. And Allah Azza wa Jal uses this uh, phrase and uses this wording because the Quraysh understood the honor of the Kaaba, and their prestige also came by them becoming custodians of the Kaaba. And the Kaaba is something which is revered, it is something which is honored, and it is something which is beloved to people. And that's why even today, or in our time, the king of Saudi Arabia, what's his title? The custodian of the two holy mosques, right? Because even till today, as you know, the Muslim Ummah, feels that sense of pride, right? And our hearts are attached to, uh, as Ibrahim salam, Allah mentions in the Quran, the dua that he made, فَجْعَلْ أَفْئِدَةً مِّنَ النَّاسِ تَهْوِي إِلَيْهِمْ When he left Ismail salam, in the barren desert land of Mecca, the dua that he made is, Oh Allah, make the hearts of people yearn towards them. The hearts of people yearn towards Mecca. We lean towards Mecca. Right? Any Muslim, even the one who doesn't pray and doesn't fast and doesn't give zakah, and do, you say to them the word Mecca and Kaaba, automatically it will bring to them a love and a reverence in their heart. Just that symbolism and just that name and just that word. And that's why the Kaaba has always been honored. Right? It's always had a place that is honored. And the Prophet ﷺ understood this, so he honored the custodians of the Kaaba. Right? And we mentioned, didn't we mention last week the story of, of Uthman ibn Talha? Right, anhu, later become Muslim, who's given the key of the Kaaba, right, Banu Shayba, the custodians of the key of the Kaaba, 
the Prophet could have taken away that key and it would have been in his right because they oppressed the Muslims and they tortured the Muslims and they were enemies of Islam. But he honored the Kaaba, and one of the ways of honoring the Kaaba was by honoring the custodians of the Kaaba. So the Kaaba has always had that special place. So Allah Azza wa Jal, to show them that this is what they should be doing, worshiping Allah alone, he invokes the name of the Kaaba to them. Let them worship the Lord of this house. So that's the same house that Allah saved from the army of the elephants, from Abraha and his army. It is the same house that the Quraysh, are, you know, they seek their position and their honor because of them being custodians of the Kaaba and the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they themselves, the Quraysh, understand its virtue and its place because when it comes to rebuilding the Kaaba in, you know, before prophethood, in the early years of the life of the Prophet wasallam, they agreed that they would only use wealth that is halal. They wouldn't use interest, they wouldn't use wealth from alcohol or anything that is haram, even though the concept of halal and haram doesn't really exist, right? There's no sharia, but they understood that the wealth has to be pure in order for it to be for the Kaaba. So they only gathered what they considered to be halal wealth. And that's why they didn't have enough to make the Hijr of Ismail, that's kind of semicircle that's outside of the Kaaba. And the Prophet told us that it's part of the Kaaba, but the people of Quraysh didn't have enough money to build it. So instead they built that small wall to show that it is the boundary of the Kaaba, but they didn't have enough money to build it in terms of adding it to the structure itself. Because even they had the honor of the Kaaba, right? And that's why it's something which has always invoked that type of reverence within the hearts of people even before Islam. And Ash-Shukani also said, and it is said that the Arabs were only given leadership and were only given position amongst all of the Arabs. The Quraysh were given that position over the Arabs because of the Kaaba, because they became custodians of the Kaaba. And that's why we mentioned last week uh, when we were speaking about the, the, the history of Quraysh and the tribe of Quraysh, that the, one of the great grandfathers of the Prophet wasallam, what did he do? He brought his family into Mecca and he kind of moved everyone else out to the outskirts of Mecca. So him and his descendants would become the custodians of, or they would be the residents of the actual city of Mecca and by the Kaaba. And that's why they were all considered to be from the children of that same forefather. Okay, question for you guys. How many different names of the Kaaba do we find in the Quran? How many different names of the Kaaba do we find in the Quran? Two? At least two. At least two. At least one. Right. How many different names? Should we go through them? The first one? Okay, Kaaba. Okay. Where's that from though? You have to give me the verse as well. You can't just say Kaaba. Maybe it's not in the Quran. Kaaba is in Surah Ma'idah, verse number 97. Which then gives you a second name, which is Al Bayt Al Haram, right? Which is in the same verse, Ma'idah 97. Number three, third one, we just did it. Al Bayt, right? The house, right? So Kaaba obviously means Kaaba. Al Bayt Al Haram means the sacred house. Al Bayt, the house, right? Which is what is mentioned in obviously the Surah, Surah Quraysh. And it is also, you know, mentioned in other places of the Quran. Number four. 
Sorry? So we did al-bayt al-haram, but there's another one that's very similar to that. Very similar. Just a slight changing in the word. Al-bayt al not haram, but muharram. Right? Allah Azza wa says in Surah Ibrahim, verse 37, رَبَّنَا إِنِّي يَسْكَنْتُ مِن ذُرِّيَّةِ بِوَادٍ غَيْرِ ذِي زَرْعٍ عِنْدَ بَيْتِكَ الْمُحَرَّمِ right? I have left my family living in this barren desert valley next to your Bayt al-Muharram. Right? And it has a similar meaning in the English language. Number, what are we, number five? Number five. Al-Bayt Al-Atiq Al-Bayt Al-Atiq As Allah Azza wa mentions in Surah Hajj verse 29 ثُمَّ الْيَقْضُوا تَفَثَهُمْ وَالْيُوفُوا نُذُورَهُمْ وَالْيَطَّوَّفُوا بِالْبَيْتِ الْعَتِيقِ Let them make tawaf around the Bayt Al-Atiq What does Atiq mean? What does Atiq mean? Al-Bayt Al-Atiq Atiq is like a name, right? People have that name, Atiq. Atiq is usually translated in English uh, as ancient. Ancient. But actually what many of the scholars of Tafsir say that it means, Atiq also comes from Itq, which means to free. Right? To free. And they say that Bayt al-Atiq means the house that is freed from oppressors. Meaning that Allah Azza wa always preserves and protects it. Anyone that comes to try to harm the Kaaba will always be, you know, punished. Right? Will always be punished. It will always be saved from oppression and oppressors. Uh, you mean the Surah number, Ibrahim thirty-seven. Surah Ibrahim, verse thirty-seven. And then we have number six. So number six now. Number six is Al Baytul Ma'mur. Yeah, it is, but it, one of the tafsirs of that also is that it is the Kaaba. That's referring to the Kaaba. In Surah At-Tur, verse number 4. Right, one of the tafsirs of that, that it is also referring to the Kaaba and Allah Azza wa Jalla knows best. So those are like six uh, names of the Kaaba, at least five, maybe six of the Kaaba that is mentioned in the, in the Quran. Any questions so far? Yeah, it is. That's also called Baytul Ma'mur. But this verse here, that's in Surah Tur, verse number four, some of the scholars of Tafsir say that it refers to the Kaaba. Right? And the hadith says the same thing, right? What is Baytul Ma'mur? It is the Kaaba of the heavens, right? Around which the angels make tawaf, right? Huh? Yeah, and it's directly above the Kaaba, right? And so, therefore, some of the scholars said that it refers to the Kaaba as well. It's one of the names of the Kaaba. So I think it's Ibn Qayyim who mentions the history of the Kaaba and he says that it was built in stages. As far as I know, and Allah knows best, there is no authentic narration that goes back that far to the time of Adam from the Prophet that he said that Adam built it in this way or that it was done in that way or whatever. However, I think it was Ibn Qayyim in one of his books who mentions, he mentions that it said that the angels were the first ones to build it. Right? And then Adam came and he, he built it upon the foundations that the angels laid for him. 
and then over time it was destroyed. And that's why when Ibrahim السلام, comes to the Mecca, and you know the scholars say he was destroyed in the, in the flood of Nuh السلام, and so on, but Allahu Alam. And then when Ibrahim السلام, comes, Allah says, وَإِذْ يَرْفَعُ إِبْرَاهِيمُ الْقَوَاعِدِ When he raises the foundations of the Kaaba, right? So the foundations were there, meaning that the position had already been marked out and the foundations exist from the time of Adam السلام, right? And the reason why they say that it's from the time of Adam السلام, is number one because of the verse in أَوَّلَ بَيْتٍ وُضِعَ لِلنَّاسِ لَلَّذِي بِبَكَّةٍ The first house of worship place for mankind is the one in, in Mecca. And then Ibrahim comes and he raises that foundation and he builds it into uh, the Kaaba that we know. And then after that was the Quraysh and then after that uh, And then it continues, right? It continues for, for many, many years and it's rebuilt and whatever and so on. Even after the time of the Prophet is rebuilt. So it's rebuilt in the time of Abdullah ibn Zubair when a flood came and it weakened Mecca, right? The structure of the Kaaba became weakened because of a flood that came in Mecca in the time of Abdullah ibn Zubair and so he rebuilt the Kaaba and he built it with the semicircle inside of the Kaaba. So it became in its original form as it was built in the time of Ibrahim salam. And he did that based on the hadith of the Prophet after the conquest of Mecca when he said to Aisha anha. Were it not that your people were new Muslims, I would have demolished the Kaaba and built it with, upon the foundation of my father, Ibrahim. Right? But he didn't do so because he thought that it would become a source of trial and a problem for those Quraysh who had become Muslims. That is something which is strange to them. They don't understand. But Abdullah ibn Zubayr did the same thing. But after his death, when the Khalifa came and he saw, or was it Hajjaj that came and he saw, yeah, he came and he saw that, oh, what's going on here? Right? What's he done with the Kaaba? And he didn't know what the reasoning was, he demolished it and he rebuilt it as the Quraysh had done, right, the way the people were used to. And then when later on the Khalifa found out that actually there's a hadith that says, no, no, so Abdullah ibn Zubayr did, okay, it was based on a hadith and it makes sense and whatever, he wanted to come and knock it down again and rebuild it with the semicircle in and he said that Imam Malik rahimahullah is the one who stopped him and he said, enough. Every time a leader comes, he knocks it down and he rebuilds it and if you do this, the people will lose reverence for the Kaaba, right? Because it's now something which just people play with. Every time a leader comes, they come and they mess with the Kaaba. It's not something which you should do. And so since that time until today, <coughs> it has remained in that present form, in its present form. And there is, you know, from the wisdoms behind that is the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha, where she said, O Messenger of Allah, I want to go and pray inside the Kaaba. And the Prophet said to her, go to the Hijr of Ismail and pray there. That is inside the Kaaba. Right? And that's something which therefore makes it accessible to every Muslim, as opposed to the few elite that only go to get to go inside the actual Kaaba itself. That's obviously something which is closed off, but it's you know, open for more or less anyone and everyone. Okay, you know, it's extremely congested and tight and busy to get there, but it is theoretically open for people to go in and pray. Right? And so that gives you an added incentive. So Aisha anha was told to go and pray there instead, and that is part of the Kaaba. Yeah, I mean, technically, which way should you pray once you go inside the Kaaba? The Sunnah is the Prophet went in and he turned left. He played towards its left wall. Right? Um, and I remember doing the same thing when I went in. That's, I think, generally what, what people do. But obviously, the Kaaba, technically, you know, it's, it's all the Qibla. Oh, within the semicircle? Yeah, they, they turn left. I think everyone turns left. No? Doesn't everyone turn left when they go into the. 
I think everyone's always prayed. You pray to the wall of the Kaaba. Yeah. No one goes in and prays the opposite way, right? You gotta pray. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe if it's like they're squashed in there. But generally, like you're praying towards the wall of the Kaaba itself. So when you're in the semicircle, you face the wall of the Kaaba. Allahu Alam. I don't know of any like additional reward in terms of like you get an additional reward for praying inside the actual Kaaba itself. Um, but it's it's obviously a Sunnah because the Prophet did so. So you have that reward of following the Sunnah. But in terms of an additional reward, like a, I don't know, and I don't know of one. And generally, you know, the principle of the Sharia is that it gives rewards for things that are open to most people, right? That's not something which is open to hardly anyone. Right. So I don't know if Allah Alam, there may be one. And Allah Azza wa knows best. What's the hikmah? I don't know the wisdom, but that's just what he did. I don't know. Allah Alam. Yeah. Unless when you go in, isn't that where the hijr, uh, with the black stone is? If you go in, I think so. If you go into the door. The black stone on the left? It is, huh? Maybe. I don't know if that's the wisdom. But, yeah. Anissa said also Bakka. Bakka is actually one of the names also that is mentioned for the Kaaba. So some of the scholars mentioned. Some of the scholars said that Bakka is referring to um, the Kaaba. And some of them said it refers to Mecca. Right? So potentially that's like a seventh name that you can. You can, you, can, you can add to like the, the names of the Qur'an, uh, sort of the names of the Kaaba in the Qur'an. And, yeah, and also, Shatr al-Masjid al-Haram, right? But we mentioned that already. But it's mentioned in different verses in Surah Baqarah, right? al-Masjid al-Haram. When Allah speaks about the Qibla change, He calls it al-Masjid al-Haram. But that's the name that's, that we mentioned um, in another verse. So, okay, so the people who, um, who are in between the time periods of two prophets, are they punished or not punished and so on? Um, if, if the people knew of a religion, of, of Tawheed at that time, and it's possible for them to know, then they're not considered to be in between those two time periods. The two time periods refers to people, a prophet came and he gave them that. I remember before the Prophet every prophet came to the individual nation, right? They weren't sent to everyone. They were sent to a specific nation or a specific group of people. So Hud is sent to Ad and Salih to Thamud and Lut to his people and Shu'ib to Madian. So Shu'ib isn't sent to Ad and Thamud and so on. So everyone's sent to their own nation. So when he's sent to that nation and, he's, and they're called to Islam and then there's a time period that elapses before another prophet comes to a different nation, people who don't get that message in between the two, they are the ones that that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will test in his own way on Yawm al-Qiyamah. But the Quraysh are different. Why are they different? Because the message of Tawheed has filtered through and it is present. And we know that because we have the likes of Waraqa, 
Ibn Nawfal, we have the likes of Zayd, uh, the father of Sa'id Ibn Zayd, Zayd Ibn Nawfal, and others who are upon what they call Hanafiya, right, which is the religion of Ibrahim salam. They wouldn't, wouldn't worship idols and they wouldn't partake in their practices and they wouldn't sacrifice to them and so on because they understood the essence of the religion of Ibrahim salam. And perhaps it can be said and Allah knows best, that's something which is specific to the Arabs of the peninsula because that's something which they understood because of their heritage from Ibrahim and Ismail and the Kaaba and Zamzam. And so that message has filtered through. Right? And that's why those people who, um, you know, it said like in the time of the Prophet before him, Yeah, so, okay, so then, yeah, the discussion of the parents of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. I mean, there are ahadith uh, that speak about, for example, when the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said that I sought permission from my Lord to go to my mother's grave and visit her, and I was given permission. And I sought permission to go and seek forgiveness for her, and it was refused to me, right? And that hadith indicates, therefore, you know, the Prophet not being allowed to seek forgiveness for his mother, it could be said and interpreted as that being a prohibition from making istighfar for someone who died upon other than Islam. And likewise, the father, the, there's a hadith of a man who came and said, Oh, Messenger of Allah, my father died and is he in the fire? He said, yes, he's in the fire. And he became upset and he walked away. And the person called him back and he said, my father and your father is in the fire. Right? So those hadith are like pretty explicit. Either way, I mean, I think these discussions aren't really fruitful in the sense that Allah Azza wa Jal will judge those people. However, he judges them. Whether they're in the fire or not in the fire, it doesn't, has no bearing on, on anything in terms of practically on our Islam and our religion or anything. But sometimes when we have, you know, when we go like maybe sometimes we go to slight extremes in terms of honoring the Prophet and showing our love for him, like there are boundaries to everything, right? If Ibrahim salam, his father was in the fire, and Nuh salam, his wife is in the fire, or his son is in the fire, and Lut salam, his wife, like prophets had very close immediate members of their family being punished and we're being told that they are from the people of the fire. So it's not something which is, you know, like strange in Islam or something which goes against a principle in Islam. It's something actually which is mentioned in the Quran, right, in, in many verses. So therefore it's not like, you know, a concept that is aiding to Islam. And you can say that those ahadith of the Prophet show that that is the position. But I think these frivolous debates that don't really have any benefit to just like arguing over things that, you know, like we have enough issues to worry about then. You know, the parents of the Prophet, I mean, that's not really something which is a major concern. What about this day and age where some people, um, they don't actually hear the message of Islam, for example, because they've been distorted and they Yeah, so people who don't really understand true Islam or pristine Islam because the message has been distorted and so on. I've come across scholars, like some of our teachers, who have said that they. So some of the scholars said, no, like that doesn't exist in our time and so on. But I've heard other scholars say yes, because of the media and its power and its influence, depending on where that person is in the world and what's going on, it's possible. And again, I think, you know, those issues, they are for Allah to judge, right? We don't need to like judge about people. We have principles in Islam that a person who dies upon other than Islam is, you know, generally speaking, he's a non-Muslim and, you know, the non-Muslims generally will go into the fire and so on. But in terms of applying that ruling on individuals, that's not something which we need to do, right? We don't have to say X, Y, and Z, and so-and-so is. We are getting sidetracked. I've, I've heard a, 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 a we were speaking about a surah of the Quran, I'm sure, <laughs> somewhere.
And also, the person who's blind doesn't have an excuse. Why would the person who's blind have an excuse? They can hear the message of Islam. But yeah, perhaps the person who is, is, is senile, obviously the person who is, who, yeah, who's majnoon or who, uh, those people don't have the, and, and the, the Prophet told us, the pen has been lifted from them. Right? So they're not, they're not accountable for the actions anyway. No, that's speaking about Khilafah, right? It's speaking about the Khilafah. So when the Muslims unite under a Khalifa, the Khalifa should generally be from the people of Quraysh. Yeah. So it does, it's not referring to like every ruler or king or president or prime minister, right? That's talking about the greater Khilafah. And that's, what, and that's generally been the case, right? So all of the Umayyads are Qurashis and the Abbasids are Qurashis. And I believe the Ottomans are. No? Were they? Perhaps. I'm sure they have something. I'm sure there's something there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, last question and then we're going to stop for Isha. No, you can't do that. Right, because in Mecca, the Masjid Al-Aqsa is in the opposite direction. If you're living in Mecca, the Kaaba is in one place and the Masjid Al-Aqsa. But it is said, it is said yeah, that he would pray on the wall of the Kaaba. Uh, towards Jerusalem, but he would he would make sure that he, he faces towards the Kaaba and then beyond that to Masjid Al-Aqsa. It is said that Allah, Allah knows best. Yeah. Allah khairan. Inshallah, same no, not the same time next week. Next week slightly earlier because Maghrib is earlier, probably around something seven thirty maybe seven twenty. Usually someone posts it anyway. Allah khairan. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim.